You're listening to the Let's Be Real podcast. Now, here's your host, Andy Hughes. Our guest right now is extremely creative and innovative. Until 2017, he was the Vice President of Innovation and Creativity at the Walt Disney Company, where he focused on creating new magical experiences for guests around the park. In the time he spent at Disney, he accomplished many things, including the introduction of the Disney Magic Band. He even worked with NASA to send his son's Buzz Lightyear doll into space to open the Toy Story Mania attraction. He also has delivered multiple TED Talks regarding the topic of innovation. After retiring with Disney in 2017, he now travels around the world as an innovation keynote speaker and creativity consultant. We are extremely excited to welcome Duncan Wardle to the Let's Be Real podcast. Duncan, thank you for joining us. How are you? Well, thanks for having me. I'm good. Thank you. How has the pandemic changed things for your operation? I know you're used to traveling around the world. It's kind of a unique time for us here. Let me just tell you how good I am at jigsaws. I'm just, I'm <laughs> knocking them out of the park, man. I'm on my 12th one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, last year I did 132 cities in 365 days. Wow. It was, I think it was 32 countries, four continents. It was basically plane, speak, fly, plane, speak, fly, plane, speak, fly, plane, speak, fly. Um, and so I was, you know, on a path to do that up until March the 15th. I think I was the last flight back in from Europe. I'd just spoken in. Stockholm, Oslo, Copenhagen, and Amsterdam. Uh, took the last flight back thinking, oh, well, this will be a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. not. But um, it's all good. It's, uh, you know, here's the thing. The number one barrier to innovation. We surveyed 5,000 people at Pixar, Lucasfilm, uh, Marvel, Disney Magic, and we asked them what were the barriers to being uh, more innovative and creative at work. And always number one that comes up is I don't have time to think. Well, now we do probably more than we want, but we do. And so now people, I hear people using the word pivot. This isn't about pivoting. This is about reimagining your business model. Because if you just, nobody's going back to business as usual. We're all going back to business as unusual. And, mm-hmm. um, let's, uh, and here's the small metaphor. I personally believe that you and I will never shake hands with another human being as long as we live. Mm-hmm. Why do I believe that? Because shaking, shaking hands is a habit. And like anything, when you stop using it, you lose it. And I believe you and I won't shake hands with somebody until after there's a vaccine. And by that time, you won't. And so now multiply that by, so 90 days ago, you may have shopped on Amazon, but I'll bet you over 50% of your retail spend was still in the physical shop. 90 days ago, I'll say uh, probably 80% of your dining expenses were dining out. Um, um, 90 days ago, you used to go to the gym every day. Mm-hmm. And now you don't. You do it on your... So we've gone virtually very, very quickly. 90 days ago, you'd probably done 10 Zoom meetings in your lifetime. Now you've probably <laughs> done more than you care. So, true. so it, the, the acceleration of change, technology never comes as fast as we think it's going to. But the shift to virtual is just going to just going to look at my industry you know i speak on stages well i won't be doing that i don't believe until 2021 Mm -hmm. nobody wants to sit in a room full of people without a vaccine nobody wants to get on a plane companies are more worried about you know furloughing their employees and figuring out how to bring them back than they are about sending people to conferences so i've had to go virtual really quickly um i'm actually going to do a workshop in verbella in august amazing new virtual place where i i will be an avatar and all the attendees will be avatars and we're going to run a virtual workshop (laughs) Um, I did one last week with an Oculus Rift headset on, and that stunt, it just blew me away. I mean, 
Oculus is a couple of years away from hitting the mainstream, but when companies realize very quickly, just take any company, right? They're going to figure out that 30% of their workforce don't actually have to be in the office. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the money they're going to save on corporate real estate, uh, they won't. So then maybe they'll buy you an Oculus headset because mm-hmm. uh, they can save money on everything else. And so it's about because Zoom doesn't physically put you in the same. You know, Zoom is a bit weird because you you never feel as if you're actually in the same room. Right. As a kind of an avatar, you kind of feel a bit awkward. Um, but there's this new piece of technology that Oculus is using, which places you and me in a room together, side by side, and your virtual hand reaches out, hands me a virtual pen, I take it out of your virtual hand, and I hold up a virtual post-it note and I write on it, hand it onto a virtual whiteboard, you pick it up and put it with your virtual hand, but guess what? You're in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. You're like, wow. Right? <laughs> but, but you're not. You're right there in the room. It's amazing. Um, just the amount of change. If, if people don't reimagine their business model, now they're gone because nobody gets yeah. to go back to business as usual. And so now is a chance to take time to think and challenge all the sacred cows of your industry and say, okay. So for example, sports. Right? I don't know if you've seen some really terrible jobs by the um, soccer overseas and um, what was the other league that came back recently they're trying to do it. Anyway, soccer overseas. So in... Um, in South Korea, they decided to put blow-up dolls in the seats. Probably not the most appropriate choice of an idea. In Germany, they put cardboard cutouts of people in chairs. Um, but just think about what you could do. So, for, you know, let's take the NBA. Uh, the NBA are coming to Walt Disney World to finish their season. The MLS are coming to Disney World to finish their season. Well, they have digital billboards around their stadiums anyway. So how might we do essentially the biggest Google uh, Hangout where you can bring all your fans into the digital billboards from around the world live and let them cheer you on. So the fans are getting the game day experience because they're actually there. The cameras are positioned along the sidelines of the court. So they've got courtside seats and and they're creating the energy that the players need to to get engaged and get in the game. Um, You know, we're... I've, look, I believe, again, the acceleration, this is just pushing the acceleration. I did an experiment with the NBA a couple of years ago to uh, pilot two virtual basketball teams. It was the virtual Orlando Magic against mm. the virtual New York Knicks. Um, but when the two teams met at Madison Square Gardens, they got three times the audience that the regular teams get. And God knows how many billion people watched online. I'll, I'll go as far as to say there will be a virtual sport in the Olympics by 2036. Wow. I'm sure of it. Um, and, you know, and, and virtual sports revenue will exceed real sports revenue within 20 years from now. Um, it's, it's just stunning the amount of change that we're going to see in the next. You know, it, it, all we've done is, is accelerate the need for a virtual world, and that, yeah. that virtual world is going to come very, very fast. Yeah, no, those are some super interesting concepts you just talked about. But I agree. I mean, I think this situation, obviously it's been challenging for everyone, but I do think that it's, it's forced a lot of companies to be creative and innovative. And, you know, we have more companies working from home than ever before. Uh, you know, you have companies that probably never thought that they would work from home and they've been kind of forced to do that. And you're right. I think there's unlimited possibilities. And I feel like this time has just accelerated that timeline to see a lot more things like the virtual sports. Yeah, I mean, you know, you spend, if you live in New York, you spend three hours a day commuting. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? You're three hours more productive. There's a big study that's just been uh, published that said employers were worried that their employees would be less productive at home 
and the, the complete opposite has been found. Because guess what? You're not doing weekly reports. You're not doing weekly meetings. You're not doing all the stuff that we never challenge. Why do you do a weekly report? Because we've always done a weekly report. How many people read, read the weekly report? Nobody reads the weekly report. Uh, why do we do a weekly meeting? Because we've always done a weekly meeting. Um, it's time to challenge all these sacred cows. Um, there's a great tool uh, to allow people to challenge the rules. It's called What If. Um, it was created by Walt Disney. Um, and it's really, this What If tool came up with Netflix, it came up with Uber, it came up with Facebook, it came up with Disney, and it was challenging the rules of the norm. So for example, you know, Mark Zuckerberg basically asked, challenged the question, how might we socialize when we're not together? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Uber said, what if every what if every car was a cab? Uh, Netflix said, what if I didn't have to drive to a physical store? Walt in 1940 said, what if I take certain movies out of the theater? And that gave birth to Disneyland. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just a tool by listing the rules of your challenge, picking one rule and saying, what if that rule no longer applied? So Walt listed all the rules of showing his movie in a movie theater. It's dark, it's dirty, I have to go at a set time, I can't rewind. I, Walt, can't control the environment. So he said, what if I could control the environment? Uh, if you know the answer, it's iteration, not innovation. Um, and he said, well, what if I take my movies out of the theater? Well, if I take them out of the theater, they couldn't be two-dimensional. Well, what if I made them three-dimensional? Mm -hmm. If I made them three-dimensional, I'd have to have people play the characters. Well, I'd have people play the characters. I'd have to wear a costume. Well, they wore costumes. I couldn't have the princesses standing next to the pirates. People wouldn't be immersed in Cinderella's story. What if I put them in different lands? Oh, wait, boom. What if I call it Disneyland? the biggest creative suggestion of the 20th century. Uh, fast forward to 2005, Reed Hastings of Netflix asked the same question. What if I didn't drive to a physical store, a blockbuster? What if I didn't have to pay a late fee? You know, and he started, sorry, he listed the rules. You know, you have to drive to a physical store, you have to be kind of rewind. They never had the one you want opening day weekend. You can only get three at a time, you have to pay a late fee. And he said, what if there was no physical store? And he looked around the world and he saw that YouTube was already well ahead of him in streaming amateur content. He mm -hmm. said, what if I stream professional content? I'll do a deal with a movie studio. Nobody would have to be kind of rewind. Everybody would get the one they want over the day weekend. I'll cut the rental off at 24 hours and so everybody pays a late fee. I'll call it Netflix. I'll take my idea to, um, to Blockbuster Video five times. They'll turn me down five times. And um, I'll, uh, I'll take them out of business in mm -hmm. less than five years. And there was a company recently, Dow DuPont, one of the largest uh, producers of genetically modified crops. I gave them a talk recently and the head of innovation stood up and said, what if it, all the crops we produce were organic? Well, think about that. That's like Philip Morris saying, what if we didn't make cigarettes anymore? <laughs> right? I mean, it's a pretty what if statement. So he said, what if, because all of their crops are genetically modified. He said, well, what if they were all organic? What if they were all you know, made, made real? And I said, well, wait a minute. What if the consumer did it for you? And they looked at me like I was totally mad. And I said, well, wait a minute. There's a very small company in Orlando based today called Fleet Farm. And they come to your house for free. They dig up your front garden for free. They plant vegetables for free. They harvest the vegetables for free. Uh, they give them to you. You can take as many as you want. The average household takes 5% of the vegetables. Uh, the people from Fleet Farm then go and sell the 95% of the vegetables to local restaurants who are looking for locally produced, sustainable, organic food and so um, the household owner gets free food the restaurant gets what they want locally produced sustainable organic food and the guy from fleet farm makes a bucket load of money um mm. what a unique business model so i said to the guys from dar dupont i said look this company can't scale you could scale and if even if it only represented 0.01 percent of your profit margin 
uh, suddenly from being the big bad guy who produces genetically modified plants, you're the good guy who's helping people grow organic, sustainable vegetables and off helping to offset carbon emissions of driving to supermarkets and having food flown in from you could look like a god mm -hmm. and so it's about challenging the rules of your industry picking one and saying what if we didn't do a weekly meeting oh outrageous <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's so true and, and i think i find it so interesting because and i think that goes really well actually with the the disney magic band because i'm thinking of you know before that was introduced you're probably saying, well, what's one of the biggest complaints at Disney that you get? It's, it's probably about lines. People don't want to wait in lines, you know, things like that. And all of a sudden you have this idea of a Disney magic band. I mean, that's a game changer when it comes to theme parks, because you, not only do you get to book all the fast passes, but you can purchase food, you can get merchandise, you can get things delivered to your hotel. It's a complete game changer. And it's all a product of those yep. what if statements that you were talking about. Well, yeah, but it actually came from a slightly different tool. So if you've got mm. a pen and a piece of paper, let's yeah. pretend you and I are going to go into business right. and you and I, I'm coming to Pittsburgh and you and I are going to open a car wash together. I want you to write down the first three ingredients you can think of that should go in a car wash and tell me what they are at the same time. Okay, let's see. Um, I will say car wash, I'd say water, soap, water. and a dryer. Soap. Okay, so screw that. I'm coming to Pittsburgh and you and I are going to go into business and we're going to open an auto spa. Now, mm. what could we put in our spa? What could we put in a spa? Hmm. Let's see. Um, masseuse, maybe a uh, barista. A spa. What um, you? There you go. So here's the thing. In less than 10 seconds, I stopped you thinking in the way you always think, your river of thinking. All your mm. expertise and your, your experience told you that a car wash must have water, soap and a dryer. All I did was re-express the challenge and called it an auto spa and suddenly we've got masseuses and baristas. And mm -hmm. so um, it was created again by Walt Disney on July 17th, 1955. Instead of saying, we will have customers and employees in our park, he said, no, we will only have guests and cast members. And that simple re-expression of the challenge created a level of hospitality that's never been replicated or duplicated. In 2011, if we had asked the same question that companies ask themselves every 90 days, how might we make more money? Be interesting, because here's the thing. Wall Street dominated the way we did business from 1920 to 2020. But just as we've seen the upheaval of our world in the last 90 days, don't think Wall Street can't crash. And what I mean by that is this. Generation Z, or Generation Z as you call it, believe more in purpose than profit. Not only do they, will they not, um, uh, do they not buy your products and services if they don't believe in what you stand for. They don't want to work for you. Well, how the hell will you be relevant as a company 10 years from today if each generation chooses not to work for you? And so it is about, so instead of saying, how might we make more money? If we said, how might we make more money? We would have put the gate price up by 3%. People would have come. We would have made our quarterly results. That's called iteration. Innovation is about re-expressing the challenge. And instead of saying, how might we make more money? We said exactly as you asked. How might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Everybody knew what it was. It was lines. So we said, what if there was no lines? What if we eliminated our front desks in our hotels, the turnpike, the front of the park, the need to stand in line for merchandise or food and beverage or your favorite attraction? And we looked around the world and we saw RFID technology, embedded it into Disney's Magic Band. You now swipe your Magic Band to check in or check out of your hotel to enter the park to get on your favorite ride um, to pay for merchandise or food and beverage. Um, had we have said, how might we make more money? We'd have made a 3% profit margin. But by reversing the question and saying, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? The average consumer in a Disney park today 
has about two hours free time they didn't have four years ago. That's resulted in record revenues, record mm-hmm. guest satisfaction and record data. Tens of millions of people pouring the gates every year, telling Disney live what they like and what they don't like, effectively crowdsourcing the future design of the Disney parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think one of the biggest topics that we talk about in this podcast is empathy. And I do see some empathy in there because you are, you know, not only are you listening to the feedback that you're getting, but you're kind of putting yourself in the mindset of a customer because we're all consumers in in some way. So how important is empathy when it comes to innovating these new ideas? So I'll answer the question in a long winded way. Um, (laughs) Have you ever stared at the back of the head of somebody you think looks really hot and they turned around really quickly and looked at you. You had to look away really quickly. Mm-hmm. we've all yep. done it we've all stared at the back of the head of somebody right so how did they know you were looking at them how did they know intuition a remarkable tool some people call it empathy some people call it intuition it's about understanding on a human level um, we are we have a hundred billion neurons in our first brain which sits in our skull we have a hundred million neurons in our second brain which sits in our intestines but the vast majority of decisions you make every day as a consumer you went with your gut so it's a remarkably powerful tool. Empathy is incredibly important. Um, and I'll come on to why it's the, one of the most important skill sets of the next decade. People call it design thinking because they get paid lots of money. Empathy is literally about listening to your consumers and giving them what they're asking for. My mother calls it common sense, not design thinking. Um, and she's probably right. Um, so here's the thing. We were tasked by Disneyland Paris to get more people to come more often, spend more money. Our going in hypotheses, very product-centric approach. We build it, they will come. We'll just build a new attraction, a couple of hundred million dollars on new investment, they will come. Uh, that's very product-centric. I'm not understanding your consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we, our data told us who had the affinity to the brand, who was coming this year, who'd been shopping online, who was a 10 out of 10 of them coming this year for the last five years in the survey, but they hadn't come. So clearly our data was missing something. So we set out to go and live with our consumers for a day to find out what we were missing. Um, I'm not a great believer in focus groups uh, because focus groups, you're always on the one side of a two-sided mirror and they know you're there. So it's not a very relaxed environment for getting insights out of people. And they tend to be individuals, not couples. Uh, If you get an individual and say to a dad, what do you do at Disney World? He'll tell you he drinks beer and plays golf. Well, that would tell me to put in a brewery and put in lots of golf courses. But if he's sitting next to his wife and he tells me he drinks beer and plays golf, his wife's going to go, no, 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 dear. You went on Big Thunder Mountain 10 times last year and you really loved it. And so you get real honesty out of the second person in the couple, not the first. Um, I call it the self-honesty policy. Um, But here's the thing. When you get inside their homes, now, um, do you have kids? I do not, no. Okay, you sound quite young. Uh, but let me see now close your eyes uh, picture yourself in your family room of your parents house and there's a photograph of you somewhere in that family room I dare say can you is there one can you see it yes I can see it okay so describe that photograph tell us where you were in that actual photograph that's actually in your parents family room today tell us where you were when that photograph was taken Uh, I was at my college graduation Okay. And how long ago was that? That was in 2013. So about seven years ago. Okay, so seven years ago. So, so here's what we found. Uh, actually, are there any more photographs of you in the family room that you could think of? Uh, yes, there's one with my, it's well, 
It was when I was very young. Um, uh-huh. just, just a family how, portrait. How <laughs> uh, it was probably three, four, five. Yeah, it was very young. Yeah, probably two yeah. or three, something yeah. like so that. So here's the thing. Our, our going in hypothesis was, as I mentioned, we build it, they will come. And I spent a day with this woman and I saw a picture in her family room, not unlike the one you just described. And I said, oh, how old are your children? Did four or five? She goes, no, love, they're 20 and 21. I said, oh, <laughs> you write it down. It's an individual clue. You write it down. A clue is something you heard, something you saw, something you experienced, written in the first person, not what I heard her say. It's I, she said, or I saw. And I noticed that the children were 16 years older than that photograph. And I just wrote it down as a clue. When we got back together as a group of 26 people, we all had the same clue. When we asked how old the children were in the photograph, they were anywhere from two years to 25 years older in reality than the photograph. We thought, well, does that mean, you know, have we gone so digital we don't take pictures of our children anymore in prison? <laughs> no, we still do. Your parents have gone for your graduation. Yeah. So we went back and spent time, uh, spent time with these mums and asked a few more questions and took a deeper dive. And what we found was this. Um, parents will tell you they want their children to uh, go to kindergarten, junior school, middle school, high school, college, graduate, get a job, be happy, healthy, and successful. Um, or do they? Or do your parents actually want them, want you back in that little photo frame when you were four years of age and they were your heroes, right? That's what parents really want. That's why we love our grandchildren so much because they're right back in the frame. And mm-hmm. so we dug a bit deeper and here's what we found using our empathy and our intuition. We found there are three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. And as you cross through that transition, you both instantly want to step back, but you can't. It's too late. I know where I was for all three. And now I'm listening to these mums telling me their stories. But um, I was using my intuition and my empathy. And I'll tell you where I was for all three bittersweet transitions in my life. I know exactly where I was when my son was 10. And he came around the bedroom door and asked me if I was Santa Claus. And in that one split second, imagination had gone, clouds, creativity, Batman, Superman. But what hurt so much was, wasn't the loss of creativity and imagination. It was the fact that what he had really said was, I'm not your little boy anymore, Daddy. I'm growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Now, girls, girls, you will not remember what happened this fateful day. You don't even remember it took place. Uh, fathers, you do. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's 20 years later. If I ask you, you'll remember where you were exactly. I know where I was that fateful day. I can tell you exactly where I was when at the age of 13, my daughter dropped my left hand in public on a Tuesday morning for the first mm. time because she didn't, she didn't want old daddy's hand in public anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, and if you ask a dad, he'll remember exactly where he was that day. Yep. And for the last one for us was the day that after she graduated from college, she got her first job. She moved to New York. We flew up from Florida. We put her into an apartment. We hugged, cheered and laughed. And then my wife and I went out to LaGuardia and cried our eyes out all the way in the, in the Uber because we were saying goodbye, essentially. Uh, she wouldn't be coming home again. Obviously, it's at holidays. So our going in hypotheses, as I mentioned, was we build it, they will come. Why? Because our data tells us that. But by going out and simply spending a day with our consumer and using our empathy and using our intuition, um, mm. instead of spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a capital investment strategy of building something we, she, she didn't want, what we realized was mum wasn't worried about whether or not Disneyland Paris was going to build a new attraction this year. Mum was worried about whether or not her children, uh, were, you know, she grows up every day worrying about whether her children, making special memories for her children while mm-hmm. they still believe, while they still hold my hand, and while they're still here. That's a communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy. One that drove record sales, 
and turned a very product-centric, we know better culture into a very consumer-centric culture where it's now mandatory for every Disney executive to work two days a year inside a Disney theme park in a frontline cast member position and one day every two years in the living room of one of our guests. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, I love that you just brought that up because one of my topics was uh, going to bring up about the fact how we're seeing kind of a migration from a focus on sales and marketing to that experience. And Disney always is about yeah. the experience. And I feel like, well, you know, even with, with Walt got, software. Walt got it right. I mean, yeah. Walt got it right. It doesn't matter if it's software or hardware. It's Anything. about creating an experience. So um, if I were to ask you to name the six most successful shopping malls on the planet, retail shopping malls per square foot, could you name them? I bet you wouldn't think to name Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Shanghai Disney, Hong Kong Disney, and Paris Disney. Well, guess what? They are the most successful yeah. retail shopping malls on the planet Earth per square mile. But wow. you would never have considered them as a shopping mall. Why? No. Because Walt put experience. Because Walt put experience first. Huh. And by putting experience first, right? So now you take a more modern day example: Universal Studios. Up until they bought Harry Potter, Universal Studios were a hard to deal ride guy. Disney with immersive entertainment experience. Mm -hmm. However, up until then, you could spend $3 for Coca-Cola at Universal Studios. Today, however, it's called a butter beer and you'll spend $11.50 on it. That plastic stick that you wouldn't give me 50 cents for? No, no, sir, to you. This is Dumbledore's Elder One and that'll be $64.99 and you'll gladly pay for it. Why is Mickey Mouse still alive at a time where Popeye, Betty Boop, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, and every other cartoon character that you grew up with is dead because Walt created a place where people could come and touch and feel and play for the breath. Mm -hmm. Now, will that have to evolve as a result of a pandemic? Oh, yes, of course it will. It'll have to evolve significantly, but it will still be experience first. Absolutely. I th and I think customers appreciate those experiences. You know, when you think about a place, you start to think about those experiences. And if you have an out-of-this-world experience like Disney always has, People are going to remember that and they're going to continue to come back. Yes, but I think you're going to have to go safety first for a while. Yes, for, a for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yes, you, so, but it's how you create that experience for mm -hmm. your coming back to work. People will want to feel brands who get it right. So, for example, if I remember rightly, and if I misquoted, I apologize. But I read an article yesterday that said United Airlines, Southwest Airlines, and American Airlines have already said they're not going to social distance anymore. They're going to fill their seats. Delta Airlines said, no, we're going to continue to social distance. We will not fill our seats. Well, who would you feel more safe about flying in two years from today? Yeah, probably this, the one that was safer. <laughs> right, exactly, right. So I think um, even, even when the work that you do, although it's mainly software, people will be looking. Safety is going to become a much more important point in people's lives than hygiene and you know, the process uh, than, than before. It'll yeah. also, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, and they're going to challenge SAP on its boardroom and what its boardroom looks like and what its senior executives look like and what its makeup looks like. And it needs to. And when I say SAP, I, need, I mean every company on the planet who has yes. paid lip service to diversity and done nothing about it. So, let me talk for a while about diversity and the need for, um, and the, the importance of it and how does it play out in terms of innovation. Um, I'm going to ask you to draw an object. I, I know you've got your pen and paper. Um, yeah. I'm going to give yeah. you ten, uh, seven seconds to draw it in just a moment. We were tasked with designing a new retail dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong Disneyland. I had in the room 
12 white male American architects, over 50 from Disney Imagineering. So I invited into the room my naive expert, who was a young female Chinese chef, simply because she was the antithesis of everybody else in the room. The job of the naive expert is not to solve your challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation because they don't work in your industry. Their role is to ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask in front of your peers or to throw out the audacious idea. So I gave the architects the following task that I will give you now. I'm going to name an object. You get seven seconds to draw it. Okay. Please would you draw a house? Please would you draw a house? Okay. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Pens down. I'm going to try and describe that house for you. I'm going to say you drew a square. Inside that square, you drew a door in the middle, at the front on the ground. You probably drew two windows above it, and you might have had time to draw bars over them. And the roof is the shape of a triangle. How did I do? Uh, spot on. It's almost like you saw me drawing it. <laughs> there you go. So here's the thing. You just went into your river thinking you're – and here's the – apart from time, the reality is this. The biggest barrier to innovation is your own experience and expertise because the more experience you get, the more expertise you have, the more you think the same way. All of your river of thinking and expertise and experience on houses told you that's what a house should look like. So you didn't even consider any other option. You could have driven, you could have drawn whatever you wanted. Well, when we all held our houses up, we all, we all held up the same house and we all laughed because we realized we'd all stayed in our river <laughs> thinking what a house would look like, except the young female Chinese chef. She had drawn a dim sum piece of architecture. It was a round bamboo dish that your dim sum would traditionally come in, but it had a window and a door and a little Chinese lady waving out of the window. And so mm. on the way out the door, somebody happened to slap a post-it note over the drawing. It said, dim sum architecture, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, the strategic brand positioning that guided the entire design of the Shanghai Disney Resort was distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Now, that is one example. Um, I won't go through the whole story, but I will tell you an 87-year-old lady from our call center in Tampa made at the Walt Disney Company, I think it was $200 million in incremental revenue by something she thought to say that we would never have thought of because we're not her. Diversity is innovation. If mm -hmm. people don't look like you, they don't think like you. And if they don't think like you, they can help you think differently. I love that. Yeah, and you're exactly right. I think when you... Get a lot of different people from different backgrounds. You can get a lot of different ideas. And I love that. Um, so that, that was great. That was a good activity. Yeah. I challenge you to challenge your leadership team and say, show me photographs of your board. Show me yeah. photographs of our executives. So show me because it doesn't look very diverse at the moment. And when I say you, I'm not meaning you. I mean every single right. company. And, and, and they're missing out because diversity is innovation. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, that, that was rare. Very well put there. Uh, one other thing that I love that I that I've seen you do in some of your TED talks, you 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 do this thing where, at the very beginning, you say you talk you ask people where are you when you get your best ideas, ah. and a lot of people will right. say things yep. like in the car, in the shower, uh, on the trolley, things like that, but they never say at work. Why do you think that is? I found that so interesting. No, it's true. So you're here commuting, jogging, running, walking, music, in the shower, at the gym, daydreaming, never here at work. Well, why is that? Well, close your eyes for a second. I want you to picture, if you can, the last verbal argument that you were in with somebody. Can you see it? Uh, yes, I can. 
Okay, so you're angry at Fred. You blind up with my boss on an email. You said, I'll never work with you again. You storm out of the office. You're angry at Fred. Never going to work with Fred again. Go to your local coffee shop. Get your cappuccino. You sit down. Five minutes after the argument's over, you're beginning to relax. And what just popped into your head? Mm. Didn't even think about it. Totally spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Just pops right in there. What was it? The killer one-liner. The one perfect, beautiful line that you thought, oh, if I'd have said that, I'd have, ooh, I'd have won that. I'd, oh, yeah, I'd have taken Fred out with that perfect line. Mm-hmm. Have you ever delivered the perfect line during the argument? No. No. Why? Because your brain in an argument is very, very busy defending itself. And you, uh, it's just chopping, chop, 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 busy, busy, busy. And your brain in an office, you are doing an email, you're doing PowerPoint presentations, you're talking to somebody, you're scheduling a calendar, you're, and you hear yourself say, I don't have time to think, the number one barrier to innovation. But the split second you gave yourself time to think, you stepped into the shower, walked away from the argument, boom, you came up with a bigger, the big idea or the killer one-liner. Well, how did you do that? How did that actually work? And how could you get in that brain state on demand? Mm-hmm. Um, Here's why, so most of us live in what I call busy beta, uh, the, where the, the door, otherwise known as the reticular activating system between your um, conscious brain and subconscious brain is firmly closed. But here's the bummer with that. 87% of your brain is subconscious, only 13% is conscious. So you're working with 13% of the capacity that you've got. But the moment you stepped into the shower, walked away from the argument, you open that door just wide enough to move from busy beta into amazing alpha. That brain state where you can still make an informed decision, but you can still come up with a big idea. Mm-hmm. And so I run energizers. They are a playful exercise. They last less than 60 seconds. All I'm listening for is laughter. Why am I listening to laughter? Because the moment I hear you laugh, I know I've just opened that door between your conscious and subconscious brain. Mm-hmm. For those of you who said, for, oh, for those of you when we asked the question, you said falling asleep or waking up is where you get your best idea. There's an expression from Thomas Edison called when the penny drops that eureka moment when I've got the big idea. He used to fall asleep in an armchair at nighttime with a penny between his knees, and as his muscles would relax, he had a tin tray on the floor, the penny would drop, hit the tin tray, which would make a noise, wake him up, and he would write down whatever he was thinking. you think, well, that's stupid, why would I do that? Well, who had more inventions, inventions patented in the 20th century than anybody else? Thomas Edison. <laughs> so if you are one of those people who gets your best ideas while you're falling asleep or waking up, Ask your boss if you can uh, take a bed to work. That probably won't work. I'm just kidding. Um, but just keep a notepad by the bed because you promise yourself you won't forget them by seven o'clock in the morning, but we all do. Um, so, but I run energizers. You can find them on my website, which is duncanwardle.com forward slash energizers. They're just uh, exercises deliberately and specifically targeted to get people to laugh. The other thing, when you are um, briefing in an ideation session, when you want people to think differently, always brief it in four or five days in advance. Why? Well, here's why. Um, People will have a shower in the four or five days, hopefully. They'll fall asleep, they'll wake up, they'll be jogging, they'll go to all the places they go to where, when they are, when they have their best ideas. Um, Also think about this, uh, um, which is also important in ideation sessions and meetings, sweat banker. Um, how many days are there in September? Thirty, I believe. All right. Okay. 30? Close your eyes. All right. Yep. Close your eyes. Tell me how you knew. How did you know there were thirty days in September? To be honest, it was lucky guess, but <laughs> don't have an exact reason. All right, okay. <laughs> so, what, people listening, some of them will go, "I know, I know, I remember the rhyme: thirty days in September, blah blah blah, and remember uh. all the rest, that blah blah blah." Right? Because that person has just told me instantly, because they learned that in kindergarten, but they remember the mind within a split second of me mentioning the question. Yeah. Um, and that's how they remembered. 
they just told me they're an auditory learner because they learned it in kindergarten. But they, at the moment I asked the question, all those years melted away and they remembered the rhyme. Another third of the audience, have you ever seen people put their two fists together and start counting their knuckles and going January, February, March, yep. April, May, June? Um, they're the kinesthetic learners. They learn by doing. Uh, they learned that's how, that's why they didn't remember the rhyme. And the, the people who remember the rhyme think, what the hell, why is he putting his knuckles up? Because they're not kinesthetic learners. So that person has told me they learn by doing. The last third of the audience, maybe you, because you took longer to, to think about yeah. the answer, <laughs> I just close, they just close their eyes and see a picture of a calendar with a number 30 on it. Yep. Those are my visual learners. They learn by seeing. Um, yeah. Here's the thing. When you're making a presentation, when you're in a meeting, just bear in mind that two-thirds of the people in the room with you do not share your preferred learning style. Mm -hmm. So if you have a presentation that you are giving to your clients and at SAP, if the first words on that first slide have the word data on it, just let me tell you, the visual learners like Duncan Wardle, I won't even be awake by the time you get to slide two because I know <laughs> I'm about to be bored to death by your data presentation. So think about what visual, particularly with 3D now, right? And, yep. and, and virtual reality, how interesting you can make data for people who are visual learners like Duncan, because I don't want to read statistics. Like, they bore me to death, but they're important, right? So help me learn what, you know, the benefit of those, that particular data point, but help deliver it to me in a, in a manner in which appeals to my learning style. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because I'm a visual learner and that's exactly what I was doing, picturing a calendar. So that yeah. makes a ton of sense. Okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> and so, you know, I think, and that's good to know for, you know, even training um, purposes and you have all these presentations, you're right. You know, you have to kind of switch it up a little bit, oh, do different things to keep interest oh, and make sure people are learning, especially if you yeah. have a lot of visual learners. Don't do a power. If you do another PowerPoint presentation, you should not be fired. <laughs> I mean, come on, how many did you sit through last year? And were you aware, so page 37, bullet point 14, were you there? <laughs> no, of course you weren't. You were mentally having dinner or something. Stop, just stop the madness. Uh, <laughs> take your traditional present, take your, here's, here's why. Do you ever watch American Idol? Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, all right. Randy, Paul and Simon, what did they used to sit behind? Just that, that desk, American Idol desk. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah, table, right? Mm -hmm. And what was the role of Randy, Paul, and Simon? What, what was their role on the show? They were just judges judging the performances. Judges. Mm -hmm. That's it. And the moment you put somebody behind a physical object when you are presenting, they will judge your work. They will think reductively and think of all the ways they can kill it. And so here's what I do. You take your PowerPoint presentation and print it out. Number one, you print it out because nobody wants to sit through another one. God knows. You stick it around the wall on big pieces of paper, print it out big because your bosses might be older than you and their eyesight might be going a bit. Make it easy for them. Give it some good visuals. Start in one corner of the room with your objectives, your success criteria, your challenge statement. Move to your consumer insights, your, your hypotheses, your ideas, and your final recommendation. Cover your final recommendation because we know they read ahead. As you walk the walls with someone, you turn a presentation into a conversation. Mm -hmm. And instead of shooting your ideas down, they will build on your work as you go. This doesn't work at 99% of the time. It works 100% of the time. If you don't believe me, don't try it on your boss the first time. Try it on a mate. Do it the same way you've always done it with your boring PowerPoint. Stand at the front of the room. <laughs> click with your clicker. They'll sit behind the table and listen to their feedback. They will think reductively. Now, 
go for a walk the walls and you'll notice how expansively their responses are. Mm. Also, think about your choice of words. You know, don't call it a presentation. Oh, we're scheduling a presentation for next Tuesday. Oh, I'm sorry, you've just asked me to judge your work and I haven't even got in the room yet, so I'm going to think reductively because you called it a presentation. Um, at the end of your uh, report out, um, don't ask somebody, what do you think? Because the moment you say, what do you think? You've invited them to think reductively. If you reframe the challenge statement and say, could you help me build on this work? Could you help me think about it differently? Um, mm -hmm. Help me think about this from a different perspective you will find they will, be, uh, they will be expansive, not reductive. If you find yourself in a room full of people who constantly say, no, because we tried that last year. No, because that's not the way we do it here. No, because we won't hit our quarterly results. No, because it's not a strategic brand fit. Tip number one, run screaming from the building, get a job somewhere else. No, just kidding. Um, tip, all that. <laughs> tip number two, try, try this. Um, so, Let's say you and are you more familiar with Harry Potter or Star Wars? I would say Harry Potter, just a little bit more. All right, so, all right. Well, you don't have to be that deeply immersed in it. What, what, what if we were going to design a party and a theme? Which one would you rather kick ideas around for? Probably Harry Potter. I know a little bit more about that. <laughs> that's cool. All right, that's fine. So, I want you to respond with the following two words. You must start each response with no because. Okay. Okay. All right. So. You and I are going to design this amazing Hogwarts party, right? We're going to take over a dining room and we're going to have a sorting hat at the entrance and people are going to come in and all the good people from SAP are going to get um, Gryffindor and all the bad people are going to get Flitter. No, no, because I, I just don't think people will go for that. Uh, we don't have a lot of Harry Potter fans. All right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, oh, wait, what if we did a magic potions room and everybody could create their own uh, magic potion with alcoholic cocktail beverage? No, because I don't know if everyone likes alcohol beverages. Mm, fair point. Oh, wait a minute. What if we did a butterbeer party? No, because I just, I don't know. I just don't think that everyone would, would feel those ideas. Okay, so stop there. Do you think our idea was getting bigger or smaller? Much smaller. Okay, all right. So let's try this again. This time you can only respond with the words yes and. Okay. All right. They must be the first two words you use. Okay. So I was thinking, right, I could come to your house and we could go out in the back garden and we could, everybody would get a broomstick, right? And we'll all pretend to be playing Quidditch. Yes. And, you know, we could all get Harry Potter costumes. We could, we could dress up the, like the parts as well. Oh, yes. And we could get the, the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? And we could play Quidditch against Ben Rufflesburg. He could be the, he could be the, what were they called? The snitch, the, not the snitch, the, what were they called? The people who used to run after the snatcher, the catcher. The... Anyway, it could be the Pittsburgh Steelers against Gryffindor. Yes, and we could get a bunch of fans to come in. Maybe we could even have it at Nines Field. Oh, yes, and we could all do it in Oculus Rift, which were so we could actually be inside Hogwarts. Yes, and we could even bring, we could meet, even form our own league with other teams to come in and play. Oh, yes, and we could get the CEO of SAP to dress as Dumbledore. <laughs> 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 so stop, stop there. A lot more laughter, a lot more energy. Um, this time around, did the idea get bigger or smaller? Much bigger, yeah. It just kept escalating each time. <laughs> but you can always take a big idea and value engineer it down. You can never take a small crap idea and turn it into a big one. Um, however, more importantly, by the time we'd finished building it together, whose idea was it? It was ours. Bingo. Two very small, simple words from the word of improv 
that have the power to transfer the power of my idea to our idea and thereby accelerate its opportunity to get done. We all work inside big organizations. We've all got approval processes. We've all got regulations and rules. We've all got hierarchy. But the moment you can transfer that power of my idea to ours, you'll stun yourselves on how many ideas you can get done versus going to another brainstorm where nothing ever happened as a result. If you tend to be a reductionist yourself in nature by saying, oh, I don't think we can get that done, or if the person in the room with you is a constant, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, just remind yourself and then, we're not greenlighting this idea for execution today. We're just greenhousing it together. Yeah, that was a fantastic exercise. Thank you for doing that. That was cool. Uh, You're welcome. <laughs> uh, one more question too, actually, um, and this kind of goes back to your story with Disney. What was your path like getting to that position of um, <clears throat> the head of innovation and creativity? How did you start getting it there into Disney? Perseverance. And I would say, you know, uh, KBO, keep buggering on, Winston Churchill's mm. favorite quote. Um, once I finished the International College program at Walt Disney World in the middle of the 80s, I went back to London and I phoned the Disney London office. They only had 27 employees at the time. They now have 3,000. I phoned that office every day for 27 days until they got fed up with taking my phone call. <laughs> and I got a cup of coffee with the boss and I became his cappuccino boy. And I used to collate 50 press kits a day. Oh. And then I was told I'd never get a job in the United States of America. I never worked for Disney. And I just kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away. And I was the guy who had all the big mad ideas. And I just, but I was the guy who got them done. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. so I define creativity as the ability to have an idea and innovation as the ability to get it done. But mm -hmm. I, always, I always went for the ideas that I had. I had a 50-50 chance of pulling them off. So when I said, you know, uh, we were opening Toy Story and somebody said, well, how are you going to create noise and excitement around it? I said, well, you know, you've seen Toy Story. They said, yeah. I said, well, what was Buzz Lightyear's dream? And they said, well, he wanted to fly, but he couldn't. He's a toy. I said, well, what if I could make Buzz Lightyear's dream come true? And they were like, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm going to send him into space. So the chairman approved it because I hadn't talked to NASA at this moment. In time. <laughs> so I went off to NASA and I met with them. And uh, the head of, uh, head of the table guy, very much in that sort of John Wayne mold, he said, uh, well, you know, if we're going to take Buzz Lightyear into space, we're going to take him out on a spacewalk. I was like, oh, my God. So with six months to go, we get a call from Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and they said, we need Buzz Lightyear here tomorrow. I said, wait, dude, the launch isn't for six months. He goes, we need two identical Buzz Lightyears here tomorrow. I was like, why? He said, well, we're going to take one Buzz Lightyear apart, uh, molecule by molecule. I was like, okay, because? And he goes, well, because if he has a... Um, uh, um, an air pocket the size of an atom inside this plastic that could explode in the vacuum of space and potentially kill or at least injure one of our astronauts. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, totally. That's what I would have done. And so, um, but at the time we had no Buzz Lightyear for sale. So I had 37 cast members in Target, Walmart, Kmart, you name it. Couldn't find Buzz Lightyear. I thought, God, don't tell me the deal's going down because the Walt Disney Company couldn't find Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> uh, so I found a mate of mine at Pixar. We got one Buzz, but we couldn't find another one. And this was in the days before smartphones. This yeah. was in the day we, we had the cool Motorola flips that used to flip. I, <laughs> yeah. I would love those. Like, that James Bond moment. <laughs> but I used to love it. And so uh, I get a call and all I hear on the phone, because you couldn't see who it was from in those days, it was like, two in front of me, up beyond. I was like, who the hell is this? It's my wife. She said, it's me. I was like, where'd you get him? He goes, oh, I'm going to change his bed collecting dust. I was like, oh, get it over there. 
So um, just as Andy did with um, Buzz Lightyear, or actually with Woody, I wrote uh, James's name on uh, Buzz's foot, uh. and I sent the two Buzz Lightyears off to Nash. So I said, don't destroy that one, because that's a real little boy, Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. Um, so six months later, my son's uh, Buzz Lightyear went off into space. And uh, about 12 months later, we were launching another Toy Story. And I thought, God, how the hell do you top sending Buzz Lightyear into space? <laughs> yeah, that's tough to top. I, I thought, I'm going to bring him home. Of course, again, I hadn't asked NASA. So I phoned the director comms up at NASA. I said, hey, when are you bringing Buzz Lightyear back then? He goes, well, we're not bringing him back. I said, oh, well, he's going to stay up there permanently. He said, no. I said, well, well, what do you do with all the stuff you take up? You bring it back, right? He goes, no, we don't. I said, well, what do you do with it? He goes, well, he's open the hatch. I said, oh, you can't incinerate Buzz Lightyear in the Earth's atmosphere. I'll leak it to the world's press, but NASA killed <laughs> Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> and so, God, God bless NASA, they agreed to bring him home. And so, um, but it was a bad weather day, so they didn't land in Florida. They used to land out at, I think it was called Edwards Air Force Base in California. And um, I, if you're old enough, you'll remember those amazing photographs of the, uh, the space shuttle piggybacking on a 747 as it made its way back across the country. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I have the actual passenger manifest in my cupboard behind me. And it's, you know, seat 13A, uh, Senator blah, 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 seat 13B, wow. Congressman blah, 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 seat 27A, Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> 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 my seat. And so if you go to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., and you go to the Space Air and Space Museum, you will find a Buzz Lightyear with a little bronze plaque underneath it saying, gift of James Wardle. Wow. And so um, I just never gave in. You know, I was, just never took no for an answer. I just kept, kept going. I love that. Yeah. And, and quickly here, we, you touched on something I thought was interesting too. You brought up uh, creativity is, you know, the ability to have an idea. Oh. I've always found that creative, oh. some people associate the word creative with art, you know, things like that. Like they can't draw uh, yeah. and they say they're not creative. That, that's not no. always the case. <laughs> okay. So hang up. So wait a minute. So you've got a pen and paper in front of you. I do. So if you ask an audience of people, put, put your hands up, who's creative, less than 10% of the people will put their hand up. Then you ask them to put their hands up if they think they can draw like Pablo Picasso and nobody puts their hand up. <laughs> so now think of your, think of somebody you know really well, mum mm -hmm. or dad maybe, or girlfriend, boyfriend, and I want you to keep your eyes open, but I don't want you to look down at that piece of paper once. I want you to look straight ahead of you, don't close your eyes, I want you to look straight ahead of you, and I'm gonna give you 15 seconds to draw that person's face starting from now, go. Do not look down, because you'll ruin the exercise if you do. Okay. So think of their eyebrows, their eyelashes, mascara, lipstick, depends on who it is, obviously. Dimple, <laughs> sideburns, beard, glasses, curly hair, straight hair, ears, mm -hmm. two eyes, usually, nose. All right, pen down. All right. Now take a look down. Have you drawn a Picasso? Uh, yes. <laughs> there you, are, you see, right? So <laughs> yeah, look, here's the thing. When we say the creatives, I'm like, oh, give me a break. Right, uh, all they dress in black. They sit on the <laughs> second floor, and they're so cool. Please stop, stop the madness. We're all born creative. When mm -hmm. you were a little boy, you got a Christmas gift, or a Hanukkah gift, or, or a Kwanzaa gift, or or for your birthday, and it came in a giant box. And you spent about two hours playing with the toy, and seven days playing with the box. Why? Because the box could be anything you wanted it to be. It was your mm -hmm. castle, it was your fort, it was your rocket ship, it was your kitchen. And then we go to school, and the teacher tells us it's just a box. And we immediately, our creativity is being challenged straight away and shot down. We're all born creative. We were all born with intuition. 
we were all born curious. You are used to ask why, 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 and why again. And then you were told to stop asking why, why, and why. You were told there was only one right answer, so you stopped looking for the second why. Mm-hmm. You're all born with an amazing imagination. Um, well, I'll cover off curiosity and then I'll, I'll finish off. Um, the number one question a child asks is why. Yeah. Uh, and why do they keep asking that? Because they know you lied the first time. Children actually better than your consumer insights team and your data are getting to the core consumer truth because they don't take the first why. They'll keep going. So if you did a data research, why do you visit Disney? We go for thrill rides. Well, that would tell me to spend a couple of hundred million dollars on capital investment strategy. But if I behaved childlike, not childish, and said, well, why do you go for the ride? Well, I remember it's a small one. Why is that important to you? I remember the music. Why, why, why is that significant? Why it reminds me of my mum. Why is that important? I take my daughter now. What, they, what you've just found out on the fifth why is the true core consumer insight as to why she's visiting the park. It has nothing to do with new capital investment strategy whatsoever and everything to do with her personal memory and nostalgia. That is a communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy. Mm-hmm. We were all born creative. We were yep. all born with intuition. We use it every day. We were all born curious and we were all born with amazing imagination. You had that weird dream last week with uh, David Beckham, Beyonce and the unicorn. You don't want to tell anybody about it. We've <laughs> all had weird dreams. I had an alligator in my swimming pool last night, according to my dream. Here's the thing. In the next decade, they say that artificial intelligence will strip up to 20% of the workforce away within North America uh, because it will replace skill sets that we have. Yes, it will replace one side of the brain. Uh, but Mm. I've spoken to two or three artificial intelligence experts and asked them, do you believe you will be able to program the four core human traits that we are born with, creativity, intuition, uh, curiosity, and imagination, any time in the next decade? And the answer is no. Therefore, the most employable skill sets of the next decade are those skill sets that cannot be programmed. And I would argue they are the ones you were born with. You just stopped using them at an early age because you were told they weren't important. Well, guess Mm. what? They are now. Mm-hmm. Yep. We all were definitely born creative. I, that's a great way to end it. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, last question I have, where can everyone find everything that you're doing? I know you mentioned your website. Is there anything else people can go to, uh, to find? Oh, I thought you were going to say where, where I thought you were going to say, where can they find you? And that would be at the bar, but um, the bars <laughs> are closed. So if they can't, um, <laughs> no, just DuncanWardle.com. You can find me. Duncanworld.com. Perfect. Well, Duncan, we thank you so much again. This was awesome. Uh, Thanks again for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.